Hello, everyone. Uh, good afternoon if you're in the UK. Good morning if you're in Eastern Time Zone and good day wherever you happen to be in the world. Um, thank you for joining us live. If you're here with us live, that is fantastic. And we look forward to you being part of this conversation um, for the next hour or so as we discuss uh, Stephen Weishart's uh, master's thesis. Really fantastic topics. We'll get into that in a second, um, but I'm glad that you're here to join us. If you're watching this at a later date, um, I'm glad that we could record this for you and I hope you enjoy it. Um, and you can certainly always uh, ask Stephen questions um, about his work at a later date if, if you're keen. And we're all hoping that this is presented at some point in the future and perhaps even published somewhere in the future. So you'll all be able to access it. Um, so thank you for joining us. This is uh, Signum Symposium uh, Thesis Theater. Um, I'm first just gonna go through a couple of events that are coming up with Signum University and Mythgard, um, just to make you aware of them. So the, the ma only major calendar event is we have uh, a moot coming up in October. I know that seems ages away in, in the middle of summer, but uh, October 12th in Hawkeye, uh, um, at Hawkeye Community College in Waterloo, Iowa is middle moot. So if anyone's in the area and would like to, to join that, that promises to be a fantastic event within our community. Um, we also have registration open for our autumn classes at Signum University, so if you want to join in any of the autumn classes, I do hope you participate. Um, we have two lectures left in the one I'm teaching now, Inklings and King Arthur, and I'm already mourning the loss of it. Uh, it's, it's been a fantastic group of people, and I look forward to the next community I get to join. Um, so courses on offer for the autumn are Modern Fantasy, Germanic Myths and Legends, C.S. Lewis and Mythologies and Sex, Introduction to Germanic Philology and Tolkien in Context. Um, so I do hope you're able to participate in one of those. That'll be fantastic. Um, we also have a Mythgard event coming up. Um, the date is still TBD, but it will be in the next couple of weeks. We're going to do a Mythgard movie uh, night of Camelot the musical, um, which is very appropriate following our Inklings and King Arthur course. So uh, I do hope you're able to join that and we'll announce that date very soon. And thank you for your patience on that. Um, also, just a note about Signum in general um, and Mythgard. I certainly hope uh, you all enjoy the content that Signum is committed to providing. Uh, I'm still quite new to the Signum community and the Mythgard community. Um, it's been about 18 months now that I've been welcomed into the family. Uh, and I have to tell you, that's what it's felt like. It's been an absolute joy of, of lovely people that are committed to making uh, education and information accessible. Um, we have all been dis. Uh, enchanted in our experience in, in academia in one way or another and it was so nice to find a community of people that put the egos to one side so to speak and just focused on sharing the joy and, and excitement of, of the things that we study. Um, so I hope you've been enjoying the programming that Signum puts on and, and Mythgard puts on um, and if it appeals to you and it's something that you feel like you want to support, of course, we're always open and, and happy to support donations. Um, I, I myself donate um, just because of the, the platform that it provides uh, at such a reasonable cost to everyone. And you don't get that in, in universities nowadays. So it's it's very nice to be able to participate in something like this and to support something like this. So certainly encourage you to, to donate um, any at all uh, opportunity that you find uh, fitting to do so. So thank you for that and for your continued support uh, with Signum and Mythgard. So that's the business sorted. Um, I would like to introduce you to Stephen Weishart. Uh, Stephen graduated with a Bachelor's of Arts in Religious Studies from Huntington University. Uh, taking a cue from C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, his studies at Signum University have focused on classical, medieval, and Renaissance literature. Stephen currently works as a librarian at the Floyd County Library in Indiana, where he specializes in youth, in youth programming. Um, this includes everything from birdwatching talks to dinosaur escape rooms to Shakespearean murder mysteries. Uh, he also does volunteer programming with the Indiana State Parks, so a, a wealth of knowledge and experience. Uh, and you're, you're in the library right now, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, thank you so much for, for being here and, and participating in the symposium with us. Um, very excited to, to chat about this. Um, so I'll, I'd like to ask you to read the abstract for your thesis, just to give us a bit of a, a grounding in what you were investigating, um, and then we'll open up discussion uh, into it. As we're talking for the next, excuse me, 55 minutes or so, please send uh, questions or any comments that you have. Um, I'll scroll through those and can feed them into the talk with Stephen. Um, so definitely, you know, react to what's going on. It makes it a lot more um, 
dynamic experience when we can uh, re react to questions that you're asking. So, so Stephen, if you're happy to read your abstract, that would be wonderful. Sure. So the uh, paper was Textual Raiders, Fan Remediation, and Indiana Jones's Grail Diary, uh, which examined the way in which fan communities interact with popular culture texts. So it's following both Henry Jenkins, who depicted fan remediation as textual coaching, and Kurt Lancaster, who portrays uh, the fan as a textual performer. Um, this thesis follows prop replication as a means of textual performance, while acknowledging the performance involves a fan's appropriation of a popular culture text to create their own artistic product. That's both an original work of art and a part of a larger intertextual web of texts. Uh, in a way, not dissimilar from um, to the intertextuality of medieval literature. The case study of this thesis is the Grail Diary prop from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the fandom of which was created in the early 1990s during the rise of internet fan communities and VHS tapes, which changed the way fans interacted with text, technology, and one another in a unique way. Thank you. So that's that's the, the academic setup. If, if you ran into somebody in a hallway, how would you describe what your, your thesis was? Uh, short answer is um, kind of medievalism and popular culture, um, mm -hmm. with Indiana Jones being kind of the, the case study in popular culture. I was kind of saying it to my class that it was uh, fan remediation, uh, taking a, a fictional text and turning it into a, an actual text as part of the canon and, and how that yeah. mirrors what happened uh, in medieval times. And so it is a combination of medievalism and modern use, but it's also an exercise in fan community and fan creation, remediation mm -hmm. in, in this adaptation. So there's a lot of Asians in there, um, but that, it, it's a really fascinating topic. So, so thank you for bringing that into here. Um, I just want to start really generally, just how did you come up with this topic? What was it that, that piqued your interest in this area? And then how did you develop it? So I, uh, of course, at Signum, I was kind of concentrating on the uh, classical medieval renaissance track, and specifically the medieval was my interest. Um, so as there's, I guess, different ways you can do that. You can, you know, look at something pre-medieval and see how it's uh, approached in the medieval times, like I think for my a lot of my Chaucer papers. I, I'm a real big fan of the uh, Jason myth, uh, classical mythology, and like, I like to look at how that was uh, used in medieval text. So that was one direction I thought of going. Um, of course, you can just look at a medieval author. You know, like I'm a big fan of Dante, but I don't know medieval Italian, so I figured I should probably stay away from that. Um, and then, uh, of course, you could also take something medieval and see how it's viewed in the modern world. And that's the direction I ended up going in. And I kind of thought of, you know, who are some of my favorite modern authors and how do they approach uh, medievalism in their works? And, of course, the Inklings, there's a lot to do there. And a lot's been done there. Um, then, of course, authors like Jane Austen, I wasn't sure how she really approached the medieval. So I ended up not going, even going down that road. I'm also a big fan of H. Ryder Haggard. Um, and I always kind of had the the Grail Diary from Indiana Jones was like kind of in my back pocket, I guess, as I thought it'd be a really fun thing to to look at, but it seemed a little less serious than the others. So I was kind of not sure if I'd end up uh, studying that one, but I thought it'd be fun to do. And of course, at Signum, you have opportunities to, uh, to do those kinds of things. So, um, and um, that's what we ended up doing. Uh, it's, I've always been a big fan of Indiana Jones and uh, especially The Last Crusade and The Grail Diary, you know, lifelong fan. And uh, um, I always thought it was one of those really uh, iconic props. You just, you know, you wanted to like reach in the screen and grab it because it looks like this book that's complete and, um, you know, something you can't just pick up on the shelf in the real world. But in the movie, it's a, this kind of complete, uh, coherent book that you just want to get your hands on. So, um, I guess I've looked at that a little bit here and there over the course of my life, but I've never did like a really thorough search. So now that I thought there was kind of an opportunity to do a real uh, thorough uh, kind of investigation of the Grail Diary prop. Um, and it kind of turned out there wasn't really a thorough study out there. Um, the text itself wasn't really very accessible, um, which I thought kind of made it um, maybe more worthy of study because then it's, you know, it's, it's not something everybody has access to. 
So, um, so that's how I ended up kind of settling on the Grail Diary um, as the, the topic for the thesis. Um, so it's not really a traditional kind of look at medieval literature, but uh, it's kind of a natural uh, natural area of study for Signum, I think. Um, we do a lot of fantasy literature studies and, and film, and um, I think we've, we've touched on kind of fantasy adventure literature in some classes. I know I've, I've taken some, and we've talked about authors like Edgar Rice Burroughs and Arthur Conan Doyle and uh, John Buchan and H. Ryder Haggard. Um, and I think Indiana Jones is kind of like the natural successor in that genre to a lot of those kind of Victorian authors. Definitely, um, so there's a natural progression uh, to move yeah. from your previous interest into the... Um, I also like that you use the word worthy because it feels very it feels very uh, Arthurian uh, in terms of, of a quest, a grail quest that you are embarking on and, and choosing this. Um, in, once you had an idea of, of what you wanted to investigate, how did you get from idea to thesis? Because you were already a little bit concerned about, you know, is it worthy? Is it is it too popular? Now we know, obviously, it's it's definitely meritable in academic investigation. But how did you develop the idea from, you know, just original concept to something a bit more academic? Well, I think, um, I guess, with the issue of being worthy, uh, something about it that you said it kind of reminds you of like Arthurian quest. It was kind of like a quest because it was so inaccessible. It was hard to, it's hard to just go get. Like it's, it's kind of online, but it's not like you just kind of Google it and, uh, you know, click on the first website. It's, it's almost like it's scattered across the internet, and you have to like, kind of pick up the pieces here and there. Um, so uh, it, it took some effort, especially in developing the, the theme, because I wasn't really sure there were so many different directions to go with it. It took a, quite a while to kind of focus on uh, what question I wanted to ask. Uh, originally, I was going to look at it from the angle of uh, Arthuriana, Arthurian literature, and uh, you know the film Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade as a, an example of um, Arthuriana or the Grail Diary itself, since it seemed like a cohesive text as an example of maybe like an almost like a lost uh, work of Arthurian literature that's not accessible. Um, but uh, I feel like that question became, I don't know, maybe you could, somebody might argue about it. It seemed very obvious that the movie w was a part of the continuing Arthurian story and the book, once you looked at it, was the, the prop, once you, investigated it was so um incomplete you know the kind of cohesiveness of it was an illusion uh that you couldn't really consider it a work of literature or a piece of arthurian literature so i kind of had to find a different uh angle to go with and you know there were lots of different ones that uh looked at like a you know more film studies or arthurian uh literature arthurian uh myth and film um we kind of we talked for a while about um, just invented texts and film in general and um, kind of works of literature that aren't real works of literature that you see in movies a lot. But fan studies and proper application is kind of the, the area I kind of landed on, I guess. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting to hear everybody's process too, because again, this is the thing I like about Signum that you don't steer away from the process. You know, people think that these genius ideas just come to them fully formed, and we go forward and become brilliant academics. It's like no, there's a lot of mess that you have to kind of sort through to really hone in on the topic. But every part of the mess was really informative to your final your final question. And there were so many bits that came out of your initial research. You know, you immersed yourself in Arthuriana and medieval texts and then immerse yourself in fan studies, and then immerse yourself in, in production and things like that to come mm -hmm. to that point. So by the time you came to that point, you had a wealth of information that you could easily access um, to help develop that a bit further. So I quite liked the process of, of you discovering the topic. What did you discover in the process of that? So did you uncover a new way to research or a new ideas that you wanted to bring into the, into the project? Uh, I think uh, in doing the the development of it, the most helpful area to focus on was the fan studies, and I feel like I really only got to the tip of the iceberg there. That's a whole. Uh, <laughs> I found a lot of books that's like, oh, I wish I had time to read this book and this book and this book and this book going into it. Um, I just kind of scratched the surface there, and um, that was that was a very interesting angle to go with the um, 
you know, Henry Jenkins, of course, textual poachers and some of the others uh, like Kurt Lancaster. Um, and both of them, uh, I found out as I was researching, both of them were starting, you know, the, it was kind of the late 80s, early 90s when they're starting their kind of fan studies. Um, and that's around the same time as you know, this last, well, not the last, the, the third Indiana Jones film and uh, the, uh, which was kind of the subject of study. Um, and it's a very interesting time, I think, for uh, fan studies because it's, you know, it's the 90s. It's basically the 90s. You've got uh, VHS tapes are have kind of taken over. And eventually uh, in that decade, they go to DVD. You've got the Internet's becoming more uh, widely available. So uh, you've got fan communities that are growing online. Um, Henry Jenkins will go into Star Trek, especially like Star Trek Next Generation. Twin Peaks, uh, Beauty and the Beast, and Kurt Lancaster tackled Babylon 5, all these TV shows from around that time, which were really changing the way that television and film were kind of viewed as an art form. Um, it was, I like it's in Textual Poachers, um, one of the Twin Peaks fans, like, is even aware that they're basically this internet fan community who's like, studying VHS tapes, you know, frame by frame, they're basically kind of reliving this uh, way that monks would, uh, you know, gather together and study manuscripts. So, um, so you get that aspect where the fans are, um, you know, kind of examining film in more detail. And it changes the way films kind of uh, being done because filmmakers are creating things that can be explored in detail. Um, and I think uh, like Spielberg, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, you know, who did Indiana Jones were kind of ahead of their time because they were already making very detailed uh, films with a lot of background information. But, um, you know, it used to be you go to the movie theater, you see a movie, you have to remember what you saw. Now you don't have to remember as much. You can put in the tape, you can pause it, even if it's, you know, VHS tape and the quality's not as good as it is now. Um, it's, it's changing things, you know, you don't have to rely on your memory. It's, it's like you have a book in front of you. Um, so it's a lot of changes in technology on that end. Um, there are a lot of like really interesting things going on there. And so there's a lot of different directions you could go in. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting. So it was not just the way like fans are interacting with, um, what they're studying, but uh, the the Grail Diary prop too uh, was just interesting because, like I said, it has so many gaps in it, so many holes. Like it looks complete, but then you see it's just a bunch of pages repeated. And uh, to replicate it, a lot of fans are kind of filling in the gaps themselves. Um, but uh, they're uh, so um, the the Grail Diaries uh, was made by a prop maker called Kier Woosby, and he used a lot of different books, but primarily there was this one kind of like coffee table book on um, on the Holy Grail that came out in the 80s and they used it as a source book. So most of the, the prop replicators would use this same book and then they would, um, you know, they'd make their own creations, but they'd use the exact same resources the original prop maker made. So even though they're all different and unique, they're all kind of, they have like a common ancestry. They're there's like a family resemblance to like these things that are created by individuals, but using the same resources. And I think that's really interesting. It's kind of this concept of a community sharing text. Um, then there's uh, the computer. Uh, there's a computer game that came out with a version of the Grail Diary, and that's uh, kind of repurposed by the fan community as a kind of a resource for making uh, replicas of the prop and filling in the gaps. So in the end, you get like this, uh, there's this A text, a B text, there's a C text, and this text takes from these two texts together, and it's it all starts to resemble like a medieval manuscript transmission, and, and that kind of became part of the focus of the paper. Completely, and it's, it's such great timing um, with the Inklings and King Arthur course. We talk about this a lot, that you know there was a, a, a bard or a scribe in uh, the 12th century um, that had pieces from the 10th century and had three broken pieces of, of manuscript that they put together and basically just cleaned up into one uh, document. So, sorry, I seem to have frozen. 
I've, <laughs> oh well, hopefully I'll come back. Um, <laughs> as long as you can hear me, that's fine. Uh, so yeah, so there is this intertextuality element um, of of medieval writers taking bits and pieces of the Arthurian tradition and and getting that magpie kind of element where I'm going to get that shiny part that I like here from the French tradition and grab Lancelot, and then I'm going to get that shiny part from the Mabinogian and grab that kind of funky Percival, and I'm going to put them together into this 13th century document and make it uh, a, a different kind of a story. So that intertextuality which is so pervasive in medieval literature that you tapped into, but comparing it to that modern element was just great because you're absolutely right. And so are the fans that that's the same practice that you're doing now. Um, bear with, I'm just gonna turn my camera off and on real quick just to unfreeze myself. There we go. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm glad you, you pulled that out. You mentioned a few things in there that I think would just be helpful for everybody to understand a bit more about. Um, would you be able to uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how the game was constructed and how the book itself was constructed? So maybe start with the Grail Diary itself. What yeah. did we have? What did fans fill in? How did that progression happen? So it, it's it's really complicated. <laughs> um, there's uh, well, You've basically got 50 pages if people need to no, read yeah, along. They, they uh, <laughs> made a version of the prop. Um, that had a, just a bunch of pages, but these were all things that weren't that important. They just repeated these pages over and over. And then the important pages that would be used in close-ups in the film, they would insert into this. So they had like a base prop with a bunch of important pages inserted into it. Um, but they also had alternate versions of the prop. Um, and the fans have gone back and looked at originals, reconstructed like the page order. And I think for the most part, everyone agrees that this this primary prop they call the hero prop, the A prop, uh, has a consistent page order, whereas the uh, the B prop is just kind of random. Um, but there are unique pages that are only in that second prop, so uh, if anybody wants something that seems like a, you know, a complete Grail Diary, they're going to use both of them. Uh, then there's this, this video game that came out the same year as the film, which made its own Grail Diary, which has almost no pages from the film in it, but it kind of tells it, it's a big, it's a cohesive whole. It, it's a diary. It tells a story. It's got journal entries, and it actually is very well researched, uh, like a, a good survey of Arthurian literature. Um, the guy who did this, um, False Team was his name. Uh, he he did his research. He made a really good um, kind of survey of medieval literature. So in a way, this. Thing that doesn't look at all like what was in the movie was closer to what a lot of people thought this prop would look like in real life. Um, so you've got these, those are kind of the three primary texts and of course um, like I said there's the uh, the book that the original prop maker used which um, was uh, used by a lot of the fans when they need to uh, invent pages they would go back and um, use the same source that the original prop maker made. Because in order to like, get a kind of a cohesive um, prop, a lot of the fans would uh, end up having to like synthesize the different uh, text. You have to invent your own pages to kind of fill in the gaps. And uh, so they're all unique. I, I don't think there's even the same uh, Grail diary maker will uh, make different Grail diaries. You know, each, each one's kind of a unique thing. But like I said, they're all kind of related. Uh, even when they're made by different people, they all kind of look the same and use the same resources. And I think that's what's what's so interesting about it is that there still isn't a cohesive singular text, is there? Yeah. So there there uh, could be um, if there could have been, I guess, if Lucasfilm would have made a like released a version of the prop when the movie came out, they could have done that. They could have, of course, they would have had to have somebody go and write all these kind of missing pages. But then there would be an official version, and then no one would have to do any kind of proper application. You could just buy it. But Indiana Jones Phantoms always kind of different than some of the more mainstream ones. You don't. There's not as much stuff to just go out and buy. And I guess the fans, of course, really wanted access to this thing. So it's almost like the um, uh, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. Uh, coming up with their uh, space travel time travel book bargain where the sort of book they want doesn't exist so they have to make it themselves um, so uh, that's kind of where you get it and um, uh, there's um, 
I guess there's actually um, one of they did come out with a book uh, in 2008 when the fourth Indiana Jones film came out. Lucasfilm released a book that had some of the pages from the Grail Diary in it, but uh, not all of them. And then it had a lot of other pages and it was called The Lost Journal of Indiana Jones. And to make this book, they ended up hiring one of the um, fan Grail Diary makers to to help them create this book because they saw the work he did. So they sort of brought the fan in and um, made them create some officially uh, licensed product. And I think um, if they were to come up with a Grail Diary now, that's what they'd have to do is they would go to the fans and say, okay, how would we do this now? Um, basically, you know, you guys have been doing this for 30 years, so now you, that's almost what they did in a way, is now you make, uh, make the thing you want and we'll sell it to you. That's the stuff that I absolutely love. When, when fan remediation becomes canon, when the yeah. film, like it was just in, I think it was The Independent this week or something, like we can learn a lot from fans was the headline of the article. No kidding, you know, like these, these people are so passionate, ourselves included, that you commit yourself entirely to the study of something so specific. Um, just because you call yourself a fan and you're studying something in popular culture doesn't mean you're not using the same practices as someone investigating any other topic within academia um, or professional research. So these guys are absolutely the experts in the field. So bringing them into proper canon, that's where I think some of this gets really interesting. So I'm glad you touched on that because I was going to ask about it later. So um, yeah, bringing bringing a fan into the, the actual production and, and what that did. Um, one of the things we talked about a fair bit was the autonomy of fan creation and how they kind of took it into their own power because what they what they had access to wasn't good enough. Um, and in, in your thesis, you talk a lot about the Maltese Falcon as an example. So I don't know if you want to mention just kind of the history of that, but if, if not, I realize it's different from the Grail Diary. Um, but how does that autonomy of fan in self-creation, like how, do, how does their work subvert the original text, if at all, or does it just replace it? Yeah, um, let's see. So I don't know, in a way there's almost like nothing really to subvert because the original prop is inaccessible, it's incomplete. Um, and like I said, if they created a new version of it, that would seem to subvert everything fans have made so far. It'd be like uh, kind of displacing this whole fandom because now there's an officially licensed product. But like I said, I think if they did that now, they would ask the fans to be the ones to make it. Um, so I think it's it's too late almost to, <laughs> to come out with a, with something that would replace uh, what the fans have done. The fans have kind of taken this over and um, it's it's almost pretty much theirs now in a way. I'm not sure what, what they could do differently. Um, so they're, like I said, the fans, they also uh, go back to the sources that the original prop maker used. There's like a, a canon of source books almost, and like fans of research, you know, Sometimes they found it by accident, like, oh, this book is, you know, word for word used in on this page of the prop. This is one of the books the original guy used. It had to be anything that was, you know, before 1989. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I'm not sure. Because um, when we see what the, what the fan makes, like, it's kind of like you said, uh, I mentioned the Maltese Falcon as, a, as an example in the paper because you have the Falcon um, that was one of the original props that was purchased um, by uh, uh, Winston. And he, uh, he took it and used it as a model to make his own and he spent millions of dollars like remaking this how he thought it should look. And then he sold the original because he now had something that's more real than the real thing. It, it looks more like uh, what he imagines a prop to be. Um, but sorry, uh, rub that in itself is just really fascinating because basically he took a film prop and found it wanting. And he said, yeah. I know this is the real thing, but it's not good enough because it's a prop. It's made out of plaster or lead or you mm -hmm. know plastic or whatever it has to be to have the prop look right on screen and be affordable. And then when he actually, I forget how much he paid, like half a million for it in an auction yeah. or something, and then ended up creating one that was eight million. I mean, using actual jewels and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so, so creating one himself because the real one was not good enough. 
I'm sorry to interrupt. I just thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, and the fan, I guess the thing is like, and I talked to one of the guys who's like one of the, it is the guy who Lucasfilm hired to uh, write this Lost Journal of Indiana Jones or to help write it uh, because of his work making Grail Diary props. He was one of the leading uh, Grail Diarists, but he said that uh, he felt like the ones he made himself that weren't just like a straight uh, replica of the prop, like page for page replica, the ones that actually looked more like a real Grail diary, he didn't feel like they were as real because he knew everything he did to make them. That way he knew everything he invented that wasn't, you know, official. Um, so to him, it's, it seems less real, but to the rest of us, you know, it seems like this is more real than if I had the actual prop in my hands. Like I would feel that, but the person who made it might not. So I guess it's kind of tricky. I don't know if uh, one can really subvert the other. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm 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 looking at some of the comments um, from Professor Shank, Gabriel Shank. I sent uh, this to him um, because he actually knows somebody that worked on uh, the Sanskrit manuscript in Temple yeah. of Doom. Um, so he was talking about the the academic versus the prop fan creation. So where's the line between academic research to create a prop and just artistic freedom in order to make it look good? because they mm. hired this guy to write the Sanskrit for this manuscript, but it didn't look good. So they ended up smudging it a bit on, on screen, which blurs the academic side of it, but makes it look better. So where's that line? And I don't, I don't know if you have a thought on it, but I just thought it was a really interesting point to bring up of, you know, you do all this research that you bring to the table to create this replica, but it's not what's used for the film. So, yeah. so how do you reconcile that? Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the, what the props use um, from the, like uh, the quest for the eternal that book um the book is about the holy grail but it's not necessarily about medieval literature it it's very vague it's very much about like um uh it's really kind of any kind of myth it's, it's almost like a joseph campbell kind of thing where it's getting more into the psychology of it and it's talking about like the the myth of the desire for eternal life so when the prop maker took bits from that he's taking things that really would not be in a, <laughs> a book about uh, medieval uh, research on Arthurian legend. It's more stuff about like the Fountain of Youth or uh, Tibetan funerary practices. There's a lot of Prester John stuff, There's which kind of ties in with uh, like Wolfram von Eschenbach. Uh, but um, a lot of it, you know, you could, if you were just a casual person, uh, like casual fan flipping through and you just saw a lot of like technical names and stuff, it, you might not really be able to tell the difference. I feel like there's always somebody in the audience who left something to nitpick. Um, and I, George Lucas and Spielberg do a very good job of like making things pretty realistic and consulting people, but there's always going to be something that's a little, uh, you know, they, they took shortcuts, I guess, <laughs> or there's always going to be something that somebody's going to scrutinize and say, yeah, that's that's not, what actually how you would make bread in Middle Earth, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I got not when I when I watch Temple of Doom, I don't know Sanskrit, so I can't tell that uh, right. you know there's anything wrong with the. Uh, the yeah, and you often hear about those dream jobs of being an academic hired to be a consultant on some sort of film adaptation. You're like, that's the dream, but then yeah. you know, you're consulted, and then they just do what they want anyway because yeah. the prop master was sick that day, and somebody had to. Stain some pages and write some stuff on it and, and submit it. Um, a friend of mine actually worked for uh, on Harry Potter, and for when the letters come through the fireplace, it was like right. 10 PAs that were just writing out the letters, and they were tired and overworked and were writing some rather crude things inside those letters, so <laughs> they were never going to be seen. It just needed snippets of, of text to appear on screen, so authenticity was not a high priority because you yeah. just don't necessarily know the motivation of the filmmaker, do you? Um, all right, we went off track a little bit, but that's all right. Um, one of the things I did want to just, just touch on is you're talking about fan creation uh, and how that kind of built a community because all these people were picking and choosing bits um, and talking to each other and starting to share information because this really was the very beginning of an interactive online space. Um, it was, what, 1996 was when message boards really started being used and it wasn't until the late 90s that this was kind of a, a safe space for people to gather and find this shared community. Um, so do you think the fan creation element of this is integral to the community of the franchise, or is this something that came after? Um, I don't know. I think, um, I think Indiana Jones fandom doesn't 
well, maybe doesn't need as much. Um, and you can be a fan of something without creating, but I think it's kind of hard to have a fandom that doesn't generate creators, that doesn't make artists. Um, there's always going to be fan creation, I think, in any fandom. Um, but I, there, there are different ways to uh, to create, I guess, uh, besides just like what we generally think of artistic creation. I think like web page building or like message board administrating doesn't sound very artistic, but in a way, it's you're still um, going on a deeper level with the the text that you're that's your fandom. Um, I think uh, you're still performing, I guess, in a way. There's always going to be performance, even if there's not like really obvious artistic creation. So I think um, there's always going to be that. Uh, Indiana Jones fandom is, um, like I said, you, well, you can probably go in a store and buy some Indiana Jones thing today, but maybe not. I don't know. It's not as it's not as big. You can't just go to your local store, I guess, and there's like the Harry Potter shelf or the Star Wars shelf. Um, there's four movies. They're kind of released sporadically. There's not a lot of, um, I guess, uh, merchandise. Um, it's it's kind of not as much about that and uh, not as much about like big public, uh, um, you know, media tie-ins. Um, a lot of, it seemed like a lot of Indiana Jones fandom was focused on like prop replication and especially costuming. Um, There's all about gear and uh, props and um, like artifacts because it's it's Indiana Jones, it's, it's archaeology, so that kind of makes sense. Um, so I don't know. I think there uh, one of the uh, one of the websites which was talking about that mentioned that this the person who wrote it was specifically talking about how you know back in the 80s and 90s you know you had a bunch of Star Trek zines and stuff, but you there weren't really Indiana Jones zines. There wasn't a lot of uh, like creation of stuff. Um, and of course there is Indiana Jones fan art, fan fiction. I'm sure that's all out there. Um, and in a way, the Grail Diary prop itself is almost more fan fiction and prop replication. It's kind of a mix of both, um, but it involves a lot of the uh, a lot of the creativity you would use toward like fan fiction goes into replicating a prop. Uh, so it's kind of a unique, uh, a unique uh, piece of fan artwork. But um, yeah, I think. Um, I think it's always going to be integral, but maybe less obviously in Indiana Jones fandom than in other fandoms. Um, but fans are always going to find a way to perform the text. Yeah, and I think this one, it was almost an invitation because it's a guide. So, you know, the, the fans are already at least aligned with archaeology, if not archaeologists themselves. So they're they're interested in the discovery side of it. Um, and it, the fact that it's an actual book, which, you know, a lot of these people would be booky people and you want to get your hands on it. Like you were saying with all those sketches and the bits of paper stuck in it, it's, it's very engaging. It's a very alluring prop because you're booky, nosy people. You want to get in there. Um, but also that it's an actual guide. You point out in your thesis that the goal is not the grail. The goal is the grail diary. So it's actually the whole point of, of the text is the pursuing of this text not the actual cup. Uh, and I think that was a really interesting uh, distinction. Um, we have a comment here that I'm just going to touch on from uh, Brenton Dickinson. Uh, Maggie's question about authenticity is my question too. It seems there are a number of ways to gauge authenticity of an artifact like this, including the look of it, a sense of age or nostalgia, handwriting or architectural details, a connection to an author or actor. Is there a tool for gauging authenticity? Um, or follow the fan, or do they follow the fan and what the fans want? Do you have an immediate reaction to that? Um, authenticity in the original prop, or in uh, like a fan? I guess in the original. I'm guessing the the one used in the film. So, it, is yeah. there is there a way that they a tool for gauging authenticity? I I think that's a little bit of a, a trickier one. There's not really a tool. And surely yeah. it's case with with remediations that you, you're choosing your adaptation of which one you're going to focus on. 
Yeah, the um, I guess the the thing, the whole thing about the Grail Diary is you weren't ever really supposed to get to look at it in detail. There's, you know, there's some pages they show them close up, and there's some things they talk about. But even those things, um, one of the things I found most intriguing was they uh, they mention in the movie that there's this uh, like lost chronicle of Saint Anselm that gives the clues for finding the Holy Grail, and there's Anselm has nothing to do with Arthurian legend. Like it's and they actually, in the, the computer game diary, try to find a way to connect it, and it's, it's interesting. Like, I want to find out, I want to learn more about that. It makes me want to learn more about it because it's like, it's completely invented. They're just kind of throwing names around, probably. The, the scriptwriter was just some medieval name they pulled out of a hat, but um, now you're like, well, what could Anselm have to do with the Arthurian mm -hmm. legend? You know, like, how would that work? And there was an attempt in the computer game diary to try to connect that, and I think that makes me want to go deeper, but it's not necessarily authentic um, to a You see that a lot with, uh, with science fiction films, with Rossi Annunciation, with like The Martian or um, Da Vinci Code. You know, they mm. throw out all, all this information, all these facts, all these numbers that make it seem grounded in absolute science, absolute mm. research. There's no question. So if, if it's presented that way, you believe it more. So by yeah. giving it Anselm, it's like, oh, this is based on something real. Therefore, I'm more engaged in the story because it's based off of something true and, and realized. Um, so I think that was a good trick of theirs. Yeah, in it makes me not want to, like, I, it doesn't make me, like, want to turn off and say, like, oh, that's that's made up and I'm not interested because it's not authentic. It makes me think, I, I want to know how it's authentic. I want to synthesize it, you know, I want to be like a medievalist and <laughs> try to put these two things together that don't go together and see where they could connect. Um, it makes you research more, yeah. yeah. Uh, in terms of a tool, I don't think there's a, a tool to gauge authenticity. Uh, I think fans are really discerning, and a lot of filmmakers are not attentive enough to fans' ability to be discerning, so they try to get away with things and fans catch it. So I think you're right with hiring somebody who's been studying this for 30 years. If they hadn't done that, somebody mm -hmm. would have called them out on it because it's, yeah. you know, you would like you would absolutely lose street cred as a filmmaker if if you undercut something that the fans have cared about for 30 years. It just shows that you didn't care and you didn't put your your research into it. So I think there's that kind of tool. Um, fans are really aware. And if as a filmmaker, you skip something, they're going to know. <laughs> um, there are a few more questions popping up, but I'm going to run through just a few more of the things uh, we've got and maybe five, 10 minutes before uh, finish. We'll, we'll go through some of these. Um, Fan creation uh, and the reception of the text, we certainly talked about that and building this community. And we've talked about it a little bit today. Is there anything else in, in that bit, especially you were talking about different sorts of technology and things like that that have helped build the fan community? Um, is there any more that you want to expand upon in that area? Uh, well, I guess what I found was pretty interesting with that was kind of on the techno technological side. Um, Let's see. Like really, the only way to approach the text has become through the fan community, um, because, like I said, there there are some books that were published that um, maybe showed some of the pages. Um, so some of the pages have been officially published; others haven't. And you have to uh, sort of acquire those secondhand, I guess, in a way. Um, there was a there was a Comic Con when I was researching. I found out they. They had a Grail diary prop there, and they uploaded all the pages on their iPad, and I thought that was pretty cool. Like you could flip through it, so you could see every page without touching the actual uh, book itself. I know a lot of fans uh, have seen original props at auctions, or um, it seems like a lot of people have, like know somebody who <laughs> saw the thing in the Lucasfilm archives, or there's some connection here or there. Um, and it's all of it's made its way online, but like I said, it's it's kind of scattered, or it's I, there is a web page that synthesizes it, but it's very kind of cryptic and confusing. And then like the other uh, kind of the fan community website, like and the discussion boards, they frown on this page for just sort of like trying to synthesize it. It's you have to I had to wade through like so many discussion uh, uh, discussion boards to get information. You kind of have to like relive all the um, all the work in a way that all the fans have been doing over the past 30 years. You have to go through all this stuff again. Um, so like the, the fan community's kind of taken 
possession of of the Grail Diary prop since it hasn't, you know, the the official like Wookiee's film had kind of taken possession of it. Mm-hmm. Um, they've kind of filled a gap. They filled a, like a hole that was missing, and um, and that, that kind of gets into um, I guess like what uh, what Jenkins says to in textual poachers that um, this whole community kind of grew out of this desire of to share this information. Um, like fan reception doesn't exist in isolation. It's because people have found themselves with information that's kind of almost a secret that they want to share with each other, and uh, that's kind of how the whole community happened. And now that's kind of the way you have to go to approach the text is through through the fan community, or at least if not through it, then like in response to it, if that makes sense. It's just, it's giving a lot of uh, power to the fandom, isn't it? That they are, they've created the primary text, even though it it isn't part of the primary world. Would you agree with that? Um, yeah, so it's, it's strange because I don't think Lucasfilm would say, oh, well, we don't have anything to do with the Grail Diary. It's in the hands of the fans. Like Lucasfilm kind of guards the Grail Diary thing. They, they own it. Um, I think the real issue is that it's almost, since it's not an actual book, it's, it's a prop. It's, you would almost say it's plagiarized in a way. It's just taking bits from other books that uh, they found here and there. So like Lucasfilm can't really take ownership of it as a, a text. It's, but they do own the prop. It's hard to say who owns it in that situation. Like, it becomes part of, a, I guess it's, it's communally owned by so many different people. It's part of so many works. It's a part of a conversation of a bunch of different works. That it's it's just an interesting uh, thing. There's a, a question here from Joe Hoffman's, uh, and and he says in the research methods class we spend a lot of time debating what is literature and what isn't. So he's asking, what's your opinion? Is the Grail Diary literature? Mm. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Why we're both laughing? Like, is it anyway? Like I think I said earlier, kind of offhand. Like, obviously, it's not because it's um, not coherent. But I don't, I don't know if uh, coherence is necessarily. uh, It's, it's not like a cohesive whole. But there's other things we consider literature that aren't either. Um, We just sort of we have to patch them together too. in a way, it's not literature, maybe because it's not accessible. It's hard to, <laughs> you can't just pick it up and, and read it. You have to put it together yourself and fill in the gaps. But I don't know if that kind of precludes it from being literature because, like I said, it is, it's very similar to, to medieval literature. That's kind of how a lot of those texts had to, had to be approached is here's pieces of it. You have to put it together and um, fill in the gaps. You know, a lot of chronicles and fragments of poems and stuff like that. That's a big question, and I, I kind of answered it as no, but I don't know if I'm going to stick to that answer. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, you've, you've got a bit where you, you break it down that I'm, I'm going to read a, a small section um, and then ask a, a follow-up question. So you have 256-page book with some blank pages. The original mm-hmm. prop had 224 written pages, but only about 70 individual pages. Most of them were repeated multiple times and you really only get to see a handful of them up close on screen. So the fan had to fill in the rest and use most, and most of them use similar sources. So that's where we were talking about all of it kind of coming from a cohesive singular um, section. But from the original prop, 224 pages, but only about 70 pages and most of them repeated. Have the fans discovered which ones are written? And is there like a core eight pages that always exist in every single replica because they were on screen? And then are the rest of them kind of agreed within the community or are they contentious? Um, how is that put together? I think the like the 70 or so pages, probably all but a few of them are in that hero prop and they're all pretty consistently in there. So those are all kind of official pages. And then there's like the five or six pages that are only in B props that, um, you know, nobody's going to disregard because, you know, you. You, there's kind of so many holes and gaps. You want everything you can get. Um, uh, um, so there's, I guess there is a canon of pages, and there's pretty much agreement on uh, 
what's an official page and what's not. Um, really, I guess the only only difference, the di where you get into the differences is if you're using that computer game diary to fill in the gaps, if you're inventing to fill in the gaps, how you're doing that, or if you're not going to fill in the gaps at all, you're just going to repeat the pages so you have a, an actual prop replica. That, and then you can get into the debate of, is this the real one or is the one that where I made up my own pages the real one? And that's the thing with prop re uh, recreation of a of an invented text. There's there isn't a real one, you know. It's which which thing are you trying to create? Uh, an inspired source text that doesn't exist, or one that was actually shown on camera that isn't very good. Um, yeah. What I think came out out of that that was quite interesting was that the pages that are agreed on from the hero text and the maps and the images and things like that that is core canon. You know, that has been used in other things and, and kind of agreed upon with the fandom as, yes, this exists, this is this is a definite. So those I would consider uh, Girl Diary literature, you know, because you could cite that, you could you could cite a specific page. But there's probably only, what, seven, eight pages that we oh, see for actually get to see close up, yeah. Yeah, there's not a lot. And those are the ones that are actually important uh, where you actually want to be able to read the text because they have to do with the plot. Everything else is just filler pictures and filler text that um, I guess if I was going to make a grail there, I might actually, even though that's canon, I feel like in a way you might want to replace those with stuff that's actually relevant <laughs> to uh, brings, what would Yeah, and that brings us back to Gabriel's question. Should film prop makers do their research better? Does it matter? You know, this is, this is the conversation. Yeah. Excuse me. Um, I invite you guys to ask some questions. I, I've got one more. Um, so if, if you have questions or comments, please type them in now while I ask this one. Um, what are you going to do with this? Are you thinking about presenting it somewhere? Are you interested in publishing this somewhere? Any thoughts? I haven't really put a lot of thought into where to go from here with that, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I imagine these guys would, would like to read it. Um, it's it's a really interesting topic and fan studies it's been around oh goodness i mean since the 1920s if you want to argue way back in the day but it's really exploded since the late 90s so this was right at the the beginning of of the interactive fan studies um but what was interesting about your topic was definitely that line between fan creation and actual canon and how does that invented text affect uh the the core text and the the original text um, so I, I really am grateful that you, you shared this uh, with all of us. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to dig into in these last few minutes um, that we didn't touch on? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, okay. well, I think uh, so, so something that was kind of interesting is my experience when I was writing the, the paper. Um, I got to borrow a prop from someone. Yeah. and. Um, but the one I looked at was, it was actually written by the, the guy who they hired to make the Lost Journal of Indiana Jones. Um, and the guy I borrowed it from, he, he uh, had access to the Lucasfilm archive. So, so I borrowed this prop. I guess the guy who made it had access to the original archives, but what he created wasn't a replica. The guy I borrowed it from had access to the original archives. And I don't know how far removed the guy who made it um, was from him. I don't know his, his story or his connection. They tend to be pretty secretive and quiet about that kind of thing. Um, but even though I'm, I'm, so I'm basically handed a complete cohesive book, but then I've, I've still got to go back and do all the, um, you know, I'm still going on the internet and uh, going through discussion boards and looking at the page order. And then I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm going through this book. I'm comparing it to what's been officially released. Um, I'm trying to like get the pages on their own. I'm, checking it against websites. I'm looking at the, you know, still frames. Like I still have to go back and do all this research, um, which I guess gets back into the, like there, there's not a not a real easy way to do it. You're still getting into that, that medieval mode of, you know, this is a manuscript I have to study kind of thing. Um, and I, I guess- like, That medieval yeah. element, because uh, Joe also said, this is the opposite problem from, us uh, from usual. So like, this is the opposite of what we're used to with old manuscripts. Usually we have lots of pages and one missing. Mm -hmm. And that is actually kind of what you're doing. So like when we started talking, it was, oh, this is the opposite. We, we only have a few and you have to make up the rest, but not really, you do have a lot. You just have to fill in the gaps, but where do you get the information for those gaps? And uh, yeah, so you're, you're processing the, 
the discovery side of it, I think was really interesting. Mm -hmm. cool. Any other questions from folks? And Stephen, anything else you want to touch on? I'm glad you brought it back to medieval. I think that's a really important point of the construction of medieval literature and Arthurian manuscripts and uh, the process and how it, it hasn't changed. Um, we just have different documents that we're working with now. Yeah, I think I, I touched on a little bit in the paper. I, I always liked when the, there's a whole, not only schools of thought of what the Grail Diary should look like among the fans, but like how you should make it. And you have people talking about uh, you know, what, what image editing software you should use or how you should print it. And then you have people talking about um, where can I buy, you know, a nib for uh, a pen that would have been used in the early 1900s in the right period, appropriate ink. You got people trying to replicate it in an old way. And I think, um, and it has to do, I think, a lot with the movie itself. Like in the opening scene, you see Sean Connery's character. He's he's copying a, uh, you know, this uh, illuminated manuscript or this image from a medieval manuscript into his book. So you get to see this prop as it's being made in the film and there's kind of like this impetus to kind of share in that and uh, do that but I think this this kind of like dichotomy between uh, printing press versus manuscript copying it's um which is just kind of defines you know the close of the medieval era is uh it's a theme in the film this um, like how do we use technology um it's for a lot of jokes in the film you know like um Indiana Jones is jousting with a Nazi on a motorcycle, or they're, um, you know, he, uh, uh, Henry Jones squirts a, squirts a guy in the eye with his fountain pen, and then Brody says, the pen's mightier than the sword. There's a lot of jokes about, um, about this kind of thing, but it's, it's about uh, medieval technology versus modern technology and what we're using technology for, um, and even uh, this, the Grail Dyer, too, becomes kind of this, this symbol. It's like, um, it's a symbol for scholarly research, and uh, the villains in the film—they just want to use it to dominate. They want to use it to—they're um, they, not interested in understanding it, but it's a tool for conquest. Um, they just want to uh, to use it to to get what they uh, need to to take over. And then, uh, since they don't understand it, they get to the end and can't pick the right grail because they haven't done the research. And then, the uh, the heroes of the film, of course, are. Uh, you know, they're scholars. They've researched. They know. They know which grail to pick um, because they've done their research. And um, it's uh, in the book uh, Ernest Cline wrote Ready Player One that came out recently. He uses the Grail Diary, and that too, it's the same kind of symbol. It's um, it's scholarly research, and it also that book I think also gets into the whole technology thing about how do you balance technology. And I think it's interesting that in this prop replication they get into. Uh, to like use new technology but use traditional things to find a way to balance the two and that's also a theme in like a lot of spielberg's movies is um, balancing technology technology is changing and how do we how much do we use it and how much do we uh, you know kind of let it take over and again i think there's something there with the nostalgia element too that we've been talking about uh, a lot of just how popular nostalgia is right now with stranger things ready player one this throwback to the 80s culture and maybe hearkening to a time of less technology and how that hearkened to medievalism which was even less technology so being able to play those cards next to each other using the grail diary as an example um and how that is changing with technology is just a fantastic way to investigate this Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to, to chat about this more, and uh, I'm, I could do this for a very long time. The, we're really scraping the surface. There's some really interesting uh, elements mm -hmm. of, of this world um, and the processes involved in fan remediation and fan performance. I think that's such a big thing that isn't really discussed about the maybe the psychological background, but also the community building side of it of just how fan performance can affect a text. Um, you know, there's a lot about cosplay and things like that, but prop replication is a fairly new area of investigation. So um, we, you know, we know how difficult some of the research was to get your hands on quite literally, um, but I'm glad that you were able to participate in the conversation and hopefully add to somebody else's research down the line uh, as this grows into a, a more recognized academic field. So 
thank you for your work in it. Um, and I hope everyone here enjoyed. Um, if you have any last comments, please write them in now. Um, and you can always drop us a line after the session as well. But thank you for attending, those of you that are here live. Um, and thank you to those that are going to be watching this later. And hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Stephen, and well done. All right, thank you. You're getting a, a stream of comments here saying thank you. It was great. So. All the best. Thanks, guys. Take care. I'll end it there. Thanks, Stephen. Nice to yeah. see you. Congratulations. This is fantastic. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for everything. Absolutely. And I'll, I'm sure I'll catch up with you soon and hopefully meet you in person one of these days. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to go to the moot. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hear a rumor we're going to have a whales moot next year, so I'm going to try to get all of you over here to the UK. <laughs> That'd be pretty nice. Fab. All right. Take care. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.